Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Viridiana Benedict. Viridiana is an assistant professor of psychology at Arizona State University, where she directs a learning and development lab and studies how children learn about the world around them. In this episode, we are going to talk about one facet of learning, how being predictable or unpredictable can help young children learn words. Without further ado, here's our conversation. for joining on the podcast with me today. I am very excited to talk to you about your work. So we are going to start our conversation by talking about your work titled Predictable Events Enhanced Word Learning Toddlers. So I'm thinking that maybe we can just start by chatting a little bit about what happened in this paper. What did you do? And also, what did you find? Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, In this paper, what we were interested in understanding is how the context of predictability or um, unpredictability shapes whether children learn a name for an object or not. And the idea really came from thinking about how predictable information influences our attention processes and our learning. So in the literature, what you actually see is that um, we tend to pay attention more to things that are more predictable versus unpredictable. But we also notice when something unexpected happens um, because it's a change in our environment. And that might also elicit a bit more um, uh, higher uh, paying attention. So this led us to the question of does these do these two types of structures have different uh, impacts or impact differently how children learn? Um, and so we decided to test this question by presenting children with um, objects uh, showing up from behind little windows. And these windows opened and closed in a predictable pattern. Um, and sometimes um, the object showed up in a predicted next location. And sometimes the object showed up in an unexpected location. And so what we did is we labeled the objects for children. So some objects were labeled at expected locations. Some objects were labeled at unexpected locations. And we tested to see how they learned the names for objects at these two different types of situations and found a benefit for objects that were labeled at expected locations, suggesting to us that Uh, predictable events are actually pretty beneficial for learning in young children. That's a very interesting experiment. And I'm pretty sure that um, many of the audience who's not necessarily familiar with the developmental work might be wondering, how exactly do you know that babies know certain things versus not? So I kind of see that you're testing toddlers who I assume are not great at like talking about what they know yet. So can you say more about the methodologies of this work? Absolutely. So with little ones, with uh, toddlers and infants uh, who can't tell us what they know, we often rely on measures like looking behavior. So um, in the study, we used a video that presented the objects um, from these different boxes and locations. 
um, and labeled the, the, the objects for children. And then to test them on their knowledge of the new object names, we actually do something that's uh, sometimes called a looking while listening paradigm, where you have two objects on the screen um, and you say uh, words like, look at the apple. Um, and then we measure where uh, which of the two objects children look at. So one uh, object might be the apple, the other object might be something different like a shoe. And we usually see that uh, little ones, toddlers who know the name apple, who know the object of the name apple will look longer at the actual object, um, the apple object. And so we use this method to test their learning of the new object label. So we put the two objects on the screen, um, they each were labeled with different names. And we said something like, where is the DAX? Or look at the DAX. DAX being a novel name that we presented during the experiment. And uh, we used an eye tracker, actually, to measure how children um, were looking at the two types of items on the screen. And so in our measures of learning, what we found is that the the objects for that were presented at the predictable locations, children looked more accurately at that uh, correct um, object for that label um, uh, uh, more often than what is expected by chance performance. Interesting. Um, so since we're talking about method a little bit, I do want to kind of go down this rabbit hole just a little bit more before talking about more interesting theoretical questions. Because one thing I noticed uh, in your work in the method section, you describe basically two different ways of measure looking behaviors. One is anticipatory looks, which I assume means that like before things happen, like whether the infants already, like or the toddler already moved their eyes towards certain targets. And another thing is the proportion of looking time. Um, so I'm wondering, um, why are there multiple measures here? Are they supposed to be like tapping into different processes and are they related to each other's in your, in your results? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, at we measured uh, infants looking time during the whole task. And so at training, as I already mentioned, there was um, these objects appearing from uh, locations that were expected. So there was a sequence of events um, and children could ex uh, anticipate which next window was going to open up to reveal an object. So we were in particular interested in measuring whether children actually generate these expectations. And if they do, they might anticipate, they might look to the next window a little bit faster um, in their expectation that that window is going to show up. And we did find by looking at these anticipations that children were um, making an anticipation of where the next uh, window was going to open up. And in particular, when that was uh, when that uh, sequence was violated. So when the wrong window opened up, we actually showed that children were much slower to orient to that window and the object that appeared there, um, demonstrating to us that they are building these expectations and these expectations are shaping how they're watching, you know, the windows open and seeing the objects appear. So that is the anticipation really gives us some information about whether this expected information is actually being processed by young children and influencing their behavior. So interesting. So is this sounds like what it's almost like when there's something that's surprising happened, infants are kind of like, oh, wait, that's not what exactly what I was expecting. So it's kind of like take them a little bit longer to process and then orient back to the target. Is that kind of the intuition behind this? Yeah, I think that could be what is uh, happening. We don't actually know, but we do have the evidence from 
you know, them taking a little bit longer to orient to that unexpected event that um, tells us that they might be readjusting um, to adapt to the current change in situation, to the current change in expectations. And one thing that I want to highlight about the our methods um, that was really, that I thought was a really important piece of the study is that because we thought maybe children were going to orient slower to those events that were unexpected, we actually set up the study so that objects were labeled when the child looked at the object. So we actually made sure that the labeling event of the objects was contingent on children's look to the location. If we hadn't done that, we might have had a confound regarding attention. If we expect, if if we think children are forming expectations and they're looking different based on those expectations, then when those expectations are changed, when the wrong, you know, the wrong window opens up, we expected them to maybe be slower at orienting to that window. And we thought that then if we automatically presented the word, uh, those uh, children would be hearing the word, but maybe not lead looking at the object yet because they take time to orient to that expected to, to now where the real, you know, where the actual window opened up. I see. And so in this way, we actually controlled for children's attention at the two different types of events. You know, the object was uh, labeled when the child looked at the object, regardless of whether that object was presented at the event that was expected or uh, at the event that was unexpected. I see. Thank you for clarifying that. And now I want to kind of switch gear a little bit to talk about this kind of general ideas with regard to the relationship between predictability and learning. So I know in the paper, you also mentioned some other works that have looked at the relationship between predictability and learning in other domains. So I'm just wondering, like when it comes to language learning, because I know there's a lot of discussion in the literature about how oh, language learning might, might be facilitated with some like language specific or domain specific learning mechanisms. So were like, were, are there reasons to believe that something that you are observing um, in this work might be specific to language? Is it possible? that um, was kind of at play um, when infants are learning in this kind of word learning setup is slightly different than say like a different uh, experiment also testing predictability? Yeah, I think that's an open question and one that I'm definitely interested in in kind of pursuing a bit in the future, in the near future. The possibility that it's more general, I think, is a very uh, real possibility that these processes that we tapped into in this particular study really are more general about learning. If that's the case, then we would expect that the predictable context would influence children learning in whether they're linking a word to an object or maybe learning some other kind of information. Um, but if it was specific to language, then if we linked it, if we examined this question in looking at a different learning scenario, then it might be the case that it is specific to language. If we didn't find that this predictable context influenced a different kind of learning, like a sound to object pairing or a different type of association that's being learned. But I do think that uh, there is a more general benefit to predictable context. And it's interesting because 
this is sort of known um, perhaps anecdotally in, in, in when you hear, you know, parents often hear, oh, you know, keep routines with your children, keep, keep things um, predictable because this is actually really helpful for their uh, learning, for them to know what's going to happen next. And it, this was our first test of whether it's actually true in terms of an experimental setup, being able to uh, experimentally manipulate the predictability of a learning event. And we found that predictable context mattered and they helped in learning. And I think in future work, it would be really interesting to understand how much does it apply to domains beyond learning words. I see. Um, so one question that I do have when reading this paper is because I know that the kind of a overall take home message from this paper is about how predictability is beneficial to learning. But I was also wondering if there is a limit to the, I guess, the benefits of um, predictability, because when you think of the most predictable things, which is something that happens over and over and over again, it can get a little bit boring. And I also know that there's some work in, in the infant literature, I think by Kit et al. showing that there's this kind of Goldilocks effect where they're kind of pushing for the idea that, oh, you can't have something that's either too predictable or too unpredictable. You really need to like, I don't know, like hit the sweet spots between something that's right in the middle. So I wonder if you have some thoughts in terms of how this kind of uh, the beneficial aspects of predictability kind of relates to some other discussions about different impact that predictability can have on, um, on learning. Yeah, I think that absolutely there probably is a, a continuum here. And um, the, we are uh, we started running an experiment in my lab to kind of understand a bit more about this question in particular. So what's interesting about the, the study is that children saw a predictable context, but it was sometimes changed because we interleave these unexpected events, right? And so it wasn't entirely 100% predictable because there were events intermixed that were unexpected. So what um, we started running a, a study in my lab here at Arizona State University, where we had some children uh, only in a predictable context. So only learning basically the same setup, but there weren't any unexpected events. And so these children were only uh, presented objects from only predictable uh, events. And a different group of children who were presented with objects labeled um, from a sequence of events that was actually random, completely random. So everything is completely unexpected. And the idea here is that maybe there is a continuum. Um, and what we tapped into in that study was sort of perhaps the sweet spot where there is a large amount of predictability, but some unexpectedness. Um, now we're looking at the other ends of that. So I 100% predictable context and a 100% unpredictable context. And what we're actually seeing um, is that children um, are learning better from the situations that is completely random, but only older children. Huh. And so I think there are age effects that are happening here too, where, um, you know, the older children might be better able at uh, to deal with the more variable types of contexts. 
And therefore, they can learn from those types of contexts better than the younger children. And the predictable context, the 100% predictable context, where it's just the same thing over and over and over again, might actually be too, too boring for all children. Um, now, we're still working on collecting data for that project, so we don't, um, it was actually interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're hoping to get back to it in the in the near future. So the jury is still out, but it does indicate that perhaps, um, you know, first of all, that it is important to consider the amount of predict predictability in the input. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's also important to consider age, because these how predictability plays a role in learning might be different if you're talking about younger learners versus older learners. That kind of dovetails perfectly to my next question, because um, I know that you are a developmentalist. And of course, I would like to know more about the developmental trajectory of this phenomenon. So when you mentioned, so it sounds like from the preliminary data, um, what you're seeing is that it's almost like older children can, I don't know, like have a better chance at learning more unpredictable things where you know, like completely unpredictable things. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on what is driving the change? Because I feel like intuitively there seem to be two possibilities. One is that, I don't know, they just become better, like mature, they're maturing, they have like more advanced cognitive processes. And the other possibility, which I know that this is definitely not mutually exclusive, that maybe older children, because they have seen more like their learning environments are opening up more doors and they're probably their parents are no longer treating them as like tiny baby and they are like in their daily life, they're embracing more variability. So I wonder, do you have any thoughts on what might be driving the changes there? I think it could be both. Um, so I do think that uh, there are a lot of, you know, that we do know there are a lot of changes that are happening um, over the early childhood period in terms of memory processes, intentional processes. And it could be that younger children's, you know, infants and toddlers, memories and attention processes are a bit more fragile. And so they might be more disrupted when um, a change happens, when uh, things that um, are unexpected happens. And particularly in a challenging situation like learning to link a new word with a new object. Mm -hmm. Older children have perhaps more stable uh, cognitive uh, processes and more stable memory. They're building more stable memories and uh, they might be less disrupted by the variability. They also might be better word learners as well. So they have that language experience and they're able to learn um, perhaps a bit more um, uh, easily uh, to link a new word with a new object. Mm -hmm. But this idea about experience with predictability and variability, I think is a really important one. And one of the things that we were doing with our study as well was trying to, we documented, we asked parents to report on um, the amount of chaos in their environment. So there's this uh, chaos questionnaire that uh, asks questions about how noisy is your environment, how messy is your environment, and it gives uh, a, an indication of the amount of chaos, which in one way to think about that would could be amount of variability that's present in the environment. And ultimately, what our goal was to see if we could link the experiences with variability, perhaps in the home, with whether you're able to learn from structure that is more predictable versus structure that is uh, a bit more variable. Because actually, it 
could be possible that children who have more experience with variability might be those children that can better deal with a situation or learn from a situation when a change happens. Interesting. Um, since we're talking about experience a little bit, I know that in our email communication, you mentioned that you want to chat more about um how different processes are a place for like both mo- monolingual children and bilingual children. And that just reminds me of, I wonder if there's a way to characterize um the amount of I guess variabilities for children grow up in different language environments. I don't know if this is like and like has any groundings, but one thing I was thinking about. So is it correct to assume that bilingual children they just grew up in a more variable environment? Um have you seen, have you done any work to see if there's a difference in how these um how children grow up in different language environments fare in those tasks that kind of require them to deal with predictability? So we haven't done that test yet when we want to. Um, But I think the question, I'm also very interested in bilingualism. And I think it uh, links up well with these questions about experience and variability. Because on, you know, from one perspective, you could imagine, you could potentially see experience with multiple languages as one kind of experience that adds variability to your environment. For example, since we're talking about learning words for objects, uh, in a bilingual environment, you're typically having to learn uh, two words for the same thing. So I, you know, for the word apple, for example, I have my word in English and I have my word for it in Spanish as well. One of the things we've been testing is whether those kinds of environments, for example, learning two words for the same thing Uh, are different, if that's different than learning one word for the same thing. And what we're finding in our experimental work in that domain is that it does turn out to be a bit more challenging to now have to figure out the two words that are both labeling the same object versus just having to learn one word that uh, is labeling a single object. And we have found that in some instances, bilingual experience does benefit that kind of learning, uh, particularly if we provide some uh, information in the learning situation that differentiates the two words for the same thing. So that make it sound like one word comes from one language and another word comes from a different language. And so I do think that the bilingual environment does present a particular type of learning situation that we definitely need to be exploring more, that we need to be understanding more what kind of input is in that environment. What are the patterns and statistics that are present in that environment? And how do learners learn from those situations? To give us a more uh, clear understanding of, you know, the variability that might be present and how learners deal with that variability. Interesting. Um, well, another thought that I, I just kind of pop up in my head was I was thinking because so far that we've been just talking about like labeling, like labeling objects, and it's kind of like the noun and the word mapping. And there's also another class, like there's a lot of different classes of words and another example might be verb um, and verbs mapping onto action. And I was thinking that it's it's to me, it feels like intuitively verbs or actions are just like intrinsically more variable as a class than now in the objects. So do we see a bilingual advantages there in terms of learning the verb and action mapping? 
So I don't know if there is a bilingual advantage for verb inaction mapping. There certainly has been some research looking at a bilingual advantage in, in general in, in word learning, a lot of it focusing on linking a word to an object because we actually, uh, we just, with some collaborators, I just, we wrote a paper showing that our word learning research is actually biased to look at scenarios in which you're mapping a word with an object for the most part. But there is a bilingual, there has been some studies indicating a bilingual advantage for um, word learning scenarios, mm -hmm. but it's also not always consistent. Um, and we sometimes see it in our research and sometimes um, uh, don't, and sometimes don't see it. Sometimes see that bilinguals and monolinguals perform very similarly in, in learning words. Oh, interesting. Um, so now, now I know that we have been talking about kind of the uh, relationship between experience to learning and predictability. And I wonder, because I know some of our audience are not necessarily like people doing academic research. And one thing that I feel like they might want to know is, is there any education implications of this finding? And I just mean that, so if you're a parent or if you're a teacher, knowing the effects of predictability on the potential learning outcomes, are there things that they can do to make their environment more, I guess, learning friendly? So I, you know, one, there is one caveat that this is very much a study that was done in the lab, um, but it does suggest that predictability is beneficial for learning. And I think, I do think that there is um, a general idea out there that keeping to, to routines and keeping to structure in children's daily lives is important. And this study really corroborates that. So I do think that parents and teachers who are incorporating this predictability, daily routines, this structure, and exposing children to that are benefiting children's learning. But there's definitely much more research that we need to do to really understand the dynamics of predictability and how it changes across age and context for example. Yeah, because one thing that I was thinking about is that because this is all like in lab experiment and by in lab, we're already kind of ruling out a lot of variabilities to kind of prevent confounds variable. So children came into the lab in a very, very kind of fixed procedural kind of a context and they are doing that particular experiment. And I know there are certain words that have shown that this kind of repeated lab visit is going to have an influence on like children's results. And in contrast, in classrooms, children are not just like learning things. They're also interacting with their peers or the teachers. So I want do you know if there's work that have looked at predictability in context in the real world education setting? Because I feel like, I don't know, this is not scientific at all, but as a baseline, it almost feel like the world out there is the, the predictability is just going to be way lower than what's happening in lab. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that's an area for, for future research. We are um, currently uh, collecting data from parents in their homes, interacting and playing with their child. And one of the things that we are wanting to do is code that data for instances of predictable types of structure. So mm -hmm. what are parents doing uh, in their interactions with their child that might actually generate uh, predictable situations that might allow children to know what's expected and what's going to happen next. And so we're currently um, uh, embarking on that uh, and understanding how in these natural environments that might be a bit more chaotic, whether parents are doing certain kinds of things in the interaction with their child to generate uh, predictability or variability. 
and perhaps seeing how that in turn influences uh, how children uh, learn language um, or other types of information. Interesting. So was that just like through questionnaires or do you have like in-home recordings? Yeah, so we had parents submit videos of uh, recordings in the home when they're playing with their child. And we're going to be transcribing those videos in the fall, collecting more as well. And we're hoping to be able to get some more information about their natural interactions with, with children, not just in the language that they're incorporating with the with play in their with their child, but also perhaps in the actions and sequences of actions that they're incorporating and in play with their child. There might it might be the case that in natural play the dynamics of predictability might be present, that parents are incorporating sequences of events. I mean, I think about some of the things that we've talked about are things like a song, right, that is repeated over and over again. Or if you think about routines like cleanup, right, cleanup, mm-hmm. cleanup, those things also have repetition, have sort of sequences of events that are predictable for a young child. And it will be interesting to understand, we might, we're hoping to understand better, how much, how frequent these kinds of predictable sequences might be present and infused by parents in their child in their play with their child. Oh wow. I imagine those will be very fun videos to watch for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, we you know with the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to come up with uh, different ways of collecting our data since we haven't been in person for a while. But uh, parents were uh, very responsive to um, recording videos at home and submitting them. And what's really nice about this method is that we can see the play in their natural uh, Mm -hmm. context. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your kind of a research directions. Um, And that kind of kind of dovetails, again, very perfectly to my like next, perhaps not last, but toward the end of the question, which is I'm wondering moving forward, what's the most exciting question for you? Because I know you have kind of talked about the theme related to the experience, variability, predictability, but what's the most exciting question for you to bring this research forward? Yeah, so I think uh, related to the idea of understanding uh, the kinds of experiences that children um, get and how that might build uh, something like learning language or learning uh, two languages, we're starting to really uh, look at uh, naturalistic observations or observations of parents and children in their natural context to see what it is that children are actually experiencing, uh, particularly in a dual language environment. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is we've started coding uh, mother-child interactions. Um, These are primarily Spanish-speaking mothers, and we have uh, free play interaction where they're playing with a set of toys. And we're transcribing right now the language that mothers are using during their play with their child. And we're actually seeing that mothers are incorporating English into their interactions with their child um, in their language uh, at 24 months of age. And it is infrequent, but the English that they're incorporating is actually appearing in uh, mixed uh, language utterances. So they might start a sentence in Spanish and switch over to English to, to say the name for a toy in English. 
Uh, and this is kind of interesting from a variability uh, perspective, right? Because they are sort of infusing some variability into their language uh, as they're speaking with their child and playing with their child. And in um, and that variability is the other language that they know, you know, their uh, Mexican-American mothers and children, they're in a U.S. context, right? So mothers primarily speak Spanish, but they also know that their child will be learning English. And um, we think that they're incorporating this English as a way to start to set the foundations for the emerging bilingual skills of their child. And so that's one thing that, that we're uh, currently exploring and trying to understand how it's going to link with dual language knowledge in children later. That's so interesting because um, I wonder if we know that are those kind of mixing, mixed use of English and Spanish something that mothers are trying to do intentionally? Or is it just like one of those cases? Because I'm bilingual too. Sometimes when I'm speaking Mandarin to my friends, I just some somehow like the English word just slip in there. So do we know if this is just a mix up or is it just intentionally mothers are trying to do that? So we don't know that. And one of the studies uh, that I'd like to do in the near future is to have uh, mothers who primarily speak Spanish, perhaps engage in conversation with the young child and then engage in conversation with an adult to see if there's actually differences in their uh, speech in those two different contexts. Because I actually do think that this is a pretty intentional use of incorporation of the English to set up that bilingual foundation. I'm also bilingual, so, um, and in my home, we primarily spoke Spanish with, um, you know, me starting to learn English at school, but I actually remember my, my parents told me recently about an anecdote in which they said that one of my first words was cookie, and I said, that's an English <laughs> word, and, and, but my parents are primarily Spanish speakers, and so I think um, parents are already doing this switching intentionally to perhaps provide opportunities for learning the other language for their younger child. Awesome. Uh, with that note, uh, I would like to wrap up the conversation here. Um, thank you again for joining on the show with us. I'm so looking forward to your future work. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show note or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.